This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, Emory University professor Patrick Allitt teaches a class about President Richard Nixon, Nixon's national security advisor Henry Kissinger, and overtures towards the Soviet Union and China. Today's class is about President Richard Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. In some ways, Nixon is one of the most brilliant people ever to occupy the White House. He had incredible political gifts. Uh, but on the other hand, he's one, also one of the worst people ever to occupy the White House because he had a broad streak of paranoia and was mistrustful, sometimes worked against the um, the. Um, instruments of government like the State Department, and of course, in the end, ruined himself by uh, bringing about his his own catastrophic downfall in the Watergate scandal of 1972 to 74. So we're going to look at the good and the bad side of of the Nixon presidency and and Nixon's partnership with National Security Advisor Kissinger. I'm going to share the screen now so that we can look at PowerPoint pictures as we go through the, uh, the sequence. Well, first of all, here's President Nixon himself. He'd been born back in 1913 in Whittier, California, and grew up in a lower middle class family in California, went to the local college there, Whittier College. He graduated and went to Duke University Law School, and uh, this is in the, in the, the worst years of the Great Depression, the, mid, the mid-1930s. Uh, During the Second World War, he joined the U.S. Navy. And on the left there, you can see the photo of Nixon as a a young Navy officer. He served with distinction in the Pacific, not as a combat sailor, but as a logistics expert, getting the the right equipment to the right place at the right time, and was given a series of commendations by his uh, commanders. He was also a very talented poker player during his off hours, because apparently he had a great ability to bluff and that's a valuable quality in, a, in someone who's undertaking foreign policy at a high level. Now, in 1946, after he'd been demobilized from the Navy, Nixon ran for Congress. And on the right there, you can see his, uh, a poster from his first election campaign. In 1946, a lot of World War II veterans were elected into Congress and into the Senate. One of them was Nixon himself, who won. Another was John F. Kennedy. Another was Joe McCarthy, who was going to give his name to the era of McCarthyism. And in his early political career, Nixon rose very rapidly through the ranks. He was an ardent anti-communist. He worked very hard to understand communism and to understand why briefly during the depression, many Americans had been attracted to communism. The House Un-American Activities Committee was dedicated to rooting out communists in high places. And he understood that it was a good weapon to use against the Democrats. A characteristic of Republican rhetoric in the late forties was the assertion that in the State Department and in other prominent parts of the government, communists were at work and that Truman knew that they were at work there and had done nothing to get rid of them. He ran successfully for a seat in the Senate in 1950, again, red baiting his opponent, Helen Gahagan Douglas. And in 1952, and he'd only been in politics for six years, he was chosen by Eisenhower to be his running mate. So a meteoric rise between 46 and 52, he goes from a freshman congressman to being vice presidential candidate. And of course, because Nixon won the election of 52, he was inaugurated as vice president in 53. And that's a job he held throughout the Eisenhower administration. In uh, 1960, he was the Republican candidate in the election against John F. Kennedy. Here are the two candidates together. But this was an election which he lost very narrowly, one of the closest elections of the 20th century. And to make matters worse, he then lost again in 1962 when he ran unsuccessfully for for the governorship of California. So in 1962, when he was in his late 40s, it seemed as though his political career had now come to an end and that he'd sink back into the relative obscurity of the life of a New York lawyer. But the disastrous failure of Barry Goldwater in the presidential campaign of 1964, in which Goldwater was the unsuccessful Republican running against Lyndon Johnson, gave Nixon the opportunity to revive his political career. And in 1968, he was back again, won the Republican nomination, and then won the election of that fall against the Democratic candidate, Hubert Humphrey. 
And by then, of course, the Vietnam War was in full swing. This was the election in which Johnson, although he'd been entitled to run, had withdrawn from the race after the Tet Offensive and after he'd been challenged inside the Democratic primaries by Gene McCarthy and by uh, Robert Kennedy. So Nixon comes into the White House, uh, inaugurated in 1969. Now, Henry Kissinger was the man he chose to be his uh, national security advisor. Kissinger had been born 10 years later than Nixon. He was born in 1923, and he was born and raised in Germany. Uh, loved, loved playing soccer as a kid, uh, very, very good in school, but he was Jewish. His family were Jewish, and so as the Nazi persecution of the German Jewish community escalated in the 1930s, the family eventually took the decision to emigrate, and of course by doing so they almost certainly saved their lives. So he was 15 when he came to the United States for the first time. He became a citizen. During World War II he joined the army, and because he was perfectly fluent in German. He was a valuable person for the American armies fighting in Europe. Uh, he was involved in the Battle of the Bulge, the, the German counterattack against the Americans in the winter of 1944 to five. Briefly, as a private soldier, he had the job of organizing a newly liberated town in Germany from the, uh, from the Nazis. And his organizational abilities made, him, made his superiors look favorably upon him. When the war had finished, Kissinger went to college, uh, first at Harvard, and then at the Harvard uh, Graduate School, where he wrote his doctoral dissertation on Clemens Metternich, and that's the man shown there in the picture on the right. Metternich was the, uh, um, a senior politician in the Austro-Hungarian Empire who contributed to the, uh, the pacification of Europe at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, the Congress of Vienna. And Kissinger wrote admiringly about Metternich because he was somebody who perfectly understood the concept of the balance of power and the importance of uh, using hard political realities, uh, the kind of thing we read about in Hans Morgenthau's influential article. And uh, Kissinger was a great believer in balance of power politics. It isn't that there's no moral component to political life, it's just that it has to be subordinated to current political realities. In the late 1950s, Kissinger, who by, th by this time got a faculty appointment at Harvard and soon got tenure, uh, published a book called Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy. He was interested in the same kinds of questions as Paul Nitzer, who we've also been reading about. The question of whether it's possible, once you've got nuclear weapons, to actually use them in a way which prevents a catastrophic, earth-destroying apocalypse. And at that point, he was cautiously optimistic that it was possible to, uh, to fight a limited nuclear war. Uh, and in its, in its small way, its relatively small way, this became a, a bestseller, at least among the, the policy elite, and contributed to Kissinger's name being spread among people in Washington who were looking for up-and-coming um, foreign policy advisors. Well, during the early 1960s, he was an advisor to Nelson Rockefeller, who was a moderate uh, Republican, belonging to the opposite wing of the party from Barry Goldwater. But in 1968, after Nixon's victory, when Nixon approached him with the possibility that he might become national security advisor, he was perfectly willing to jump over to the Nixon camp and, uh, and seize this marvelous opportunity to become a senior policymaker inside the new Nixon White House. Although Eisenhower had been president in the 50s, Eisenhower was really a very bipartisan kind of politician. I mentioned earlier that the Democrats had also asked him to be their candidate. So in a way, this was the first time the Republicans had been in the presidency since Herbert Hoover left office way back in 1932. There wasn't such a big pool of experienced Republican uh, office holders as there were Democrats, because the Democrats had dominated the recent generations. Now, one of the things that Nixon and Kissinger did together was to revolutionize America's diplomatic posture in, with respect to two of the great, the, the other, two of the other great powers in the world. One was the Soviet Union and the other was China. The nuclear weapons race had been going on ever since the end of, the, uh, of World War II with growing urgency since 49 when the Russians had, launched, had tested their nuclear weapon for the first time. 
And by 1969, the, uh, the, the low population states of the Great Plains and the Mountain West were honeycombed with missile silos, and so were the Great Plains of Siberia, with each side ready to fire nuclear weapons against the other. And both sides had gradually realized that they had a common motive in trying to reduce the danger of an accidental exchange of weapons, and in fact, that they had a common interest in preventing nuclear war from ever taking place because its destructiveness was so, so complete. They'd reached a condition of mutual assured destruction, whose lovely acronym is MAD. And they'd even reached the point of overkill. They could kill each other's populations many times over. So it was clearly a time to start rethinking how to, how to understand the arms race and whether it made any kind of sense. Both sides had already appreciated when they signed the Atmospheric Test Ban Treaty in 1963 that they had a common interest in not testing these weapons in the atmosphere. And by 69, they also, had a, they also recognized a common interest in trying to de-escalate back from the brink of an accidental war. The photograph on the right shows Neil Armstrong walking on the surface of the moon. And this also took place in the first year of the Nixon administration, summer of 69. An incredible achievement, but people who were interested in the world of weapons and military hardware understood perfectly that any rocket which can take men to the moon can also be packed with uh, nuclear warheads and be fired against the other side. One of the characteristics of, of um, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, is that they're fired into space and that they come down uh, at a supersonic speed out of space orbit to attack their targets on the, on the ground. A new uh, wrinkle in the weapons by 68 was what was called the MIRV, M-I-R-V, the Multiple Independently Targeted Reentry Vehicle. Instead of having just one warhead, there'd be nine or 10 packed into the nose cone of the rocket. They'd be fired together, but then they'd disperse in space and each would head for a different target, obviously making the prospect of intercepting them that much more difficult and adding another layer of danger. So this was the, these were the conditions under which Nixon decided it was time for a new approach to the Soviet Union and a policy which went by the name, the collective name of detente. Here's a cartoon from the time showing that some of the paradoxes of nuclear weapons, two armies facing each other, both loaded with these enormously powerful bombs. And you can see the sign on one side says, on no account to be used because the enemy might retaliate. And on the other side, on no account to be used because the enemy, enemy might retaliate. So in other words, they've reached a standoff and here they are firing bows and arrows, archaic weapons at each other because they can't use the, the most powerful weapon in their arsenal. Well, now one of the characteristics of the Nixon Kissinger style of diplomacy was not to use the regular channels. In other words, not to go through the State Department and not to use the, uh, the professional foreign policy staff who were trained to do exactly this kind of work. Instead, they opened back channels with Anatoly Dobrynin, who was the Soviet ambassador in DC. And incidentally, Dobrynin himself is a fascinating person. He first became a um, Soviet ambassador to America in 1962 when Kennedy was president, and he remained in that job right through until 1986, with the result that he, he worked with presidents Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter and Reagan, uh, a long continuity of office overseeing the interests of the Soviet Union inside the USA. And everyone who met him agreed that he was charming and cultivated and incredibly knowledgeable about these foreign policy affairs. Well, through Dobrynin, rather than through the State Department, Nixon and Kissinger began talking about the principle of detente with the Soviet premier. That's Brezhnev, who's shown there on the left. So here's Nixon talking with Brezhnev and the simultaneous interpreter just leaning in to make sure that he gets the nuances of the translation right between them. And uh, Nixon was able to persuade uh, Brezhnev of the essential rightness of reducing their nuclear arsenals. In other words, each side was spending far too much money on these nuclear arsenals. Each was increasing the danger of an accidental war, and therefore they'd got a mutual interest in de-escalating. So negotiations began, the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, whose acronym is SALT, very characteristic of that period with acronyms like MAD and SALT. 
And it eventually led in 1972 to the signing of the SALT One Agreement. Now, one interesting aspect of it, which is um, depicted in the picture, the photograph on the right there, uh, the, the photo on the right shows an anti-ballistic missile. One of the thoughts that all the defense planners had had was this. If the enemy fires its nuclear weapons against us, we'll surround our cities with, uh, with defensive missile bases. If, we, if, if our radar shows that enemy missiles are coming towards us, we'll fire our anti-ballistic missiles, which will intercept them and prevent our cities from being destroyed. Now, at first glance, that seems like a very good idea because it makes the cities safer. But as you know, one of the characteristics of, of war planning and war gaming during the Cold War was to think very carefully about the way in which the enemy would interpret your actions. It isn't enough just to have an intention. You've got to make sure that your intention is understood by the adversary. And the American war planners, especially the negotiators of the Salt One Treaty, said this. If we build an ABM system, an anti-ballistic missile system, and surround our cities with it, what the enemy is going to think, or what the enemy might think, is this. That's a sign that the Americans are planning a first strike against us. They'll fire their missiles, because then when we retaliate, they'll be able to shoot down our counter-strike. In other words, the fact that they're building an ABM system is an ominous sign that they're planning to strike us first. That's dangerous because it escalates the, the mutual perception of threat. So then the question becomes, all right, so how do we reduce the danger that, that, that that's what they're going to think? And the answer they came up with, which was embodied in the SALT Treaty, the ABM part of the ABM Treaty, was this. We're not going to build these systems. We're going to leave ourselves defenseless. Because by leaving ourselves defenseless, we're making it less likely that our intentions will be misunderstood because then the adversary will understand that. We know that if they launch against us, we'll be utterly destroyed, but they won't do so because they know that we can launch against them before their missiles hit us. So in other words, by the ABM treaty, each side assents to the principle of making itself defenseless as a way of reducing the danger of nuclear war. It's a complicated way of thinking, but it does have an internal logic, which in the end proved quite widely persuasive to the policymakers on all sides. So it was at a summit meeting in 1972 that uh, the, the Soviet and the American uh, leaders uh, signed the treaty, which went into effect from that time on, because the US Senate also endorsed it. Now, of course, there were people in America who were horrified by this. Um, old-style um, anti-communists, the, the toughest of the anti-communists, people like Barry Goldwater, thought this was dismaying. Goldwater's view was, the Russians won't have assented to it unless they believe that it can help them. And if it helps them, it can't possibly help us as well. In other words, there were people who still said, whenever one side gains, the other side must lose. The alternative view, of course, was this is a condition in which both sides can gain because both can be reassured of the reduction of the danger of nuclear war. Now, another thing which made it particularly painful was that only the year before, or the year before Nixon came into office, 1968, Soviet tanks had rolled into Prague, the capital of Czechoslovakia. The Czechs in 68, just like the Hungarians back in 56, had attempted to establish a little bit of distance between themselves and Soviet control. And even though the, the new Czech government was in no way hostile to the Soviet Union, it wasn't sufficiently subservient. And at once the Russians responded by sending tanks. This is remembered as Prague Spring, one of the, tra one of the many traumatic events of 1968. And to anti-communists throughout America, it was one more sign that the Soviet Union is utterly untrustworthy. It was only because Nixon had got such strong anti-communist credentials from his earlier career that he could get away with doing this in the first place. If a democratic president had tried it, it almost certainly would have won the united opposition of the Republicans and would never have come about. So Nixon understood he was in a position to do something that his, his democratic rivals probably could not have managed. Now, the other great development of the first Nixon administration was the diplomatic opening to China. I mentioned earlier in the course that uh, Mao Zedong successfully completed the Chinese revolution in 1949. 
And we encountered the Chinese, the use of Chinese troops in the early days of the Korean War when they attacked across the the China-North Korea border after the Incheon landings when American forces were moving north in, in North Korea. But between 1949 and the early 1970s, the United States didn't have diplomatic relations with uh, with communist China, the People's Republic of China at all. The United States continued to recognize Taiwan, that is the offshore island in the the, uh, Pacific, to which Chiang Kai-shek had had led the the defeated and retreating nationalist Chinese at the end of the Chinese Revolution in 1949. When on the, on the few occasions when an American diplomat needed to talk to a Chinese diplomat, they met in Warsaw behind the Iron Curtain and had informal talks. But by 70 and 71, Nixon was thinking there's something extremely odd about this situation. In fact, Nixon had written an article in the journal Foreign Affairs, which was published in 1967, in which he said this, taking the long view, We simply cannot afford to leave China forever outside the family of nations, there to nurture its fantasies, cherish its hates, and threaten its neighbours. By 1969-1970, it was also becoming clear that communism was not monolithic. In other words, there were differences between Russian communists and Chinese communists, and differences again between them and Vietnamese communists and that it was possible to see a little bit of daylight between these various brands of national communism. And of course, one of the central principles of foreign policy is the idea, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So as uh, border incidents began to take place between China and the Soviet Union on their very, very long uh, land border in Asia, Nixon and Kissinger understood if we can befriend China, or at least achieve diplomatic normalization of relations, that's going to add pressure on the Soviet Union. Although we want to coexist with the Soviet Union, we don't want to give them an easy time. We're still, we're continuing to hope, as George Kennan had said way back in the, in 46 in the long telegram, that eventually the Soviet system is going to uh, fold up because of its own imperfections. Now here's, this is a little badge, and here's Mao in the foreground, and this shows you his self-conception. The people in the background from left to right are Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, Marx's great friend, um, Lenin, and Stalin. So Mao saw himself in this line, the kind of classic lineage of communism, as the next of the great leaders. Affairs inside China had been incredibly turbulent in the years between the Chinese Revolution and the uh, arrival on the scene of Nixon and Kissinger. The Great Leap Forward was perhaps the most catastrophic policy decision ever made. This was an attempt by China to introduce a five-year plan, which was originally designed to run until 1963, to increase grain production in the Chinese countryside and also go through a crash course of industrialization. Uh, what actually happened was that the, the peasant farms were forcibly collectivized, and you can see people on, on the photograph on the right here working on great collective farms. The hope was that the, the rationalization and efficiency of large-scale farms would lead to a sharp increase in grain production. What actually happened is that the resentful peasants whose land had been taken away from them found it found far less incentive to work hard on on such farms than they would have done if they'd been working on lands of their own. And so productivity went down very sharply. Now also, another aspect of the Great Leap Forward was the decision to have a crash course of industrialization, because Marxism is a system which is predicated on an industrial society. And Marx had always expected that the industrial working class were the revolutionaries. So all over China, people were encouraged to build little homemade blast furnaces. You can see a couple of them on the left there. And to bring all their metal goods and to smelt them down in the hope that China could suddenly become a mass producer of steel goods. Well, it turns out to be a complicated technology which simply can't be done on a little homemade amateur scale. So this is another policy initiative which failed drastically. Just to give you an idea of the, the scale of the calamity, The famine which began in China is regarded by most demographers as the single worst famine in the entire history of the world. Literally millions, perhaps as many as 50 million people died of starvation in the years between 59 and 61. 
one of the many crazy policies pursued in the Great Leap Forward was the program against the four pests, rats, flies, mosquitoes, and sparrows. There is something to be said for trying to stamp out the first three. But when the Chinese also attempted to kill all the sparrows on the grounds that they ate a lot of grain, the result was that a natural predator against insects disappeared. And so the killing of the sparrows was almost immediately followed by a great plague of locusts, whose damage was literally on a biblical scale, uh, leading to, as I say, to mass famine and luckily to the calling off of, the, of this crazy program. This graph gives you a little glimpse of the damage that was done. The green uh, spike is the, is the Chinese death rate. And you can see that during the Great Leap Forward, it takes an enormous upward jump. So many people died that it was followed by a, a sharp rise in the birth rate as families struggled to, re to replace the lost population. And a bit later still, that led to the Chinese one-child policy, which itself has been a, a highly controversial human rights issue from then really right through until the present. The other noteworthy policy that Mao undertook was the Cultural Revolution, beginning in 1966. Mao could see that in some respects, the uh, Chinese revolution was becoming bureaucratized. It was becoming routine, that the initial euphoria of 1949 and 50 had worn off, that class stratification was beginning again in China, that there was a lot of corruption inside the government offices. And what he hoped to do was to restore a sense of permanent revolution inside China. So with the use of the, of the Little Red Book, the, the, the booklet of Mao's own sayings, he set about trying to um, unsettle the, the stability which China had begun to uh, achieve by the mid-1960s. And this included the public denunciation of the intellectuals. So here's a common street scene in the late 1960s in China, where people who are being accused of, of intellectual deviancy from the strict path of Maoist communism are being publicly denounced. And if you had the misfortune to be one of these denounced people, you could be sent off to labor camps or executed altogether. But also rituals of public shaming like this. Here are four men who've been accused of being intellectuals, and they're made to stand on uh, chairs in the public square with placards around their necks, denouncing them for their deviancy from the strict orthodoxy of Maoist policy. Also an incredible period when uh, everybody was made to participate in the harvest. So that when, it came, when late summer and early fall came about, an enormous urban depopulation took place as uh, Chinese uh, officials who no longer worked in agriculture were forced to go back to the land to work in the harvest to keep alive the memory of the um, agrarian roots from which they'd come. Nearly all books from the West were banned unless they were books uh, of Marxist orthodoxy. And so the Cultural Revolution is also remembered as a horrible period of repression and mass persecution. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a period when there's a lot of border incidents along the, the boundary between the Soviet Union and China, when it's becoming increasingly clear that Although China and the Soviet Union are both communist nations, and although Mao himself had greatly admired Stalin and had really wanted to be his disciple, nevertheless, the, different, the policy differences or the political differences that are opening up between them offers an opportunity for American foreign policymakers to uh, create some distance between these two great communist rivals. Now, one of the first times when the icy distance between the USA and China began to diminish was when the American table tennis team went to visit China in 1971. The two teams had met in Japan at a tournament and a couple of the American players had been talking in a friendly way with some of the Chinese players and the Chinese um, political handlers understood or interpreted this as a diplomatic advance from the American government and invited the Americans to go and play. Now, the Chinese were much better at ping pong than the Americans, and the result was a massive win for the Chinese team. But of course, that was good for their morale. Uh, the American team, apparently, the players said, we've never seen the game played at this level, and they were comprehensively defeated. But anyway, it was a little crack in the armor, a little thaw, a moment suggesting perhaps it is going to be possible for us to, to talk. And what happened later that year is that Henry Kissinger went secretly to China to talk with Mao. And so here they are meeting. Now he gave himself the code name for this mission of 
Polo. And that's clearly a reference back to Marco Polo, the European merchant and adventurer who'd visited China centuries previously on one of the first occasions when China started to be opened up to the rest of the Western world. Kissinger was on a visit to Pakistan and he claimed to have fallen ill and then someone else impersonated him in the, uh, in the, as he recuperated, while secretly Kissinger flew off to China and got into negotiations with Mao, really pr principally about the possibility of restoring di normal diplomatic relations between the two, and potentially regarding China rather than Taiwan as China at the United Nations. Nixon was very eager for this to be done secretly. And again, everybody in the State Department was frozen out from it so that Rogers, the Secretary of State, didn't even know that this had happened. And knowledge of it was confined to a tiny elite. But it worked. And uh, the, the, the welcome given by Chow Enlai and, and, and Mao to Kissinger opened the way to a visit by Nixon in the following year. So it really would be hard to... Uh, to uh, overstate the shock that photographs like this had when they first appeared in the American press in 1972. Uh, Richard Nixon, whose whole life until then had been based upon fanatical anti-communism, shaking hands and making toasts with the leadership of communist China. It, it, it astonished the world and it had a revolutionary effect upon diplomatic relations. On the same journey, he visited both China and the Soviet Union for the Salt Juan Treaty. And of course, this was in 1972, which is a presidential election year. And he understood that he was likely to be able to get a lot of positive mileage out of these two diplomatic accomplishments, uh, setting up his re-election campaign. And in, indeed, when it came to the point, he won the nomination and re-election overwhelmingly in the election of 1972. Once again, uh, anti-communists like Barry Goldwater, and for that matter, like Ronald Reagan, who was then the governor of California, were horrified by this. They thought it was a betrayal of long-standing uh, principles. But nevertheless, uh, this was the agreement that was made. And uh, from that time on, China and the United States moved towards the normalization of diplomatic relations. And as you know, in the decades since then, very, very strong trading relations have, have sprung up between the two. Here's a, this is probably the most iconic photograph taken from that visit. And it's common now. I mean, half of, I don't know, a, th a third of the families in America have got relatives who visited the Great Wall of China. But this, a photograph like this had been unimaginable since before World War II. So to see Nixon with Mrs. Nixon and, and dignitaries from the Chinese and the American governments on the Great Wall was really a, a spectacular and amazing sight. Now, in 1973, the Yom Kippur War between Israel and its Arab neighbors, something we're going to get into in more detail, led to the first gasoline crisis of the 1970s when the price went up very sharply. Henry Kissinger, again, was uh, right in the midst of attempting to negotiate a diplomatic solution to this crisis. And he developed a technique called shuttle diplomacy in which, uh, with his own plane, was going constantly back and forth between Israel and Egypt. He's speaking here with Anwar Sadat, who was the Egyptian leader, and making periodic trips to Saudi Arabia to talk to the king there, and periodic trips to Damascus to talk to the Syrian leaders. And this kind of exhausting back and forth laid the groundwork for the treaty, which was going to be signed in a, a subsequent administration in 79, between uh, Egypt and Israel. Again, something which had been unimaginable a few years previously, and which Kissinger helped to bring about. Here's a great a typical cartoon from the time. It can be interpreted in various ways, but I think the way to interpret the cartoon is this. The Middle East is like a bomb. It's very volatile indeed. It's about to blow up, but suddenly, like the genie coming out of a bottle or Aladdin, up pops Henry Kissinger to, you know, to defuse the bomb. That's the idea behind this cartoon. The thing about Kissinger is that he became very famous Normally, the Secretary of State isn't a person of particular interest, except to people who are very interested in politics. Uh, but Kissinger became a celebrity. Even though he spoke English with a very thick Germanic accent, he'd started to learn English too late to speak it fluently in a way that someone learning from childhood can do. He almost sounded like a cartoon German. Uh, nevertheless, he was interviewed and, and fated People asked him about his girlfriends. They talked to him about 
power as an aphrodisiac and so on. Just to give you an idea, here's a, the cover of Newsweek magazine from June of 1974. So this is at a time when Nixon's fortunes have sunk to a very low ebb. In fact, Nixon's within a month or two of resigning because of Watergate. But Kissinger's riding high and the cartoonist for Newsweek is comparing Kissinger to Superman, Super K. On the other hand, if you look at the picture on the right, this is a picture uh, from the political left, the anti-war movement, for whom Kissinger was a devil figure. When Nixon came into Nixon and Kissinger came into office in 69, it was already clear that the Americans had got to find a way out of the Vietnam War. And to the anti-war movement, it seemed absolutely disgraceful that four more years had gone by before the final American disengagement, because in every one of those years, more Americans were killed, more bombing raids took place, tens of thousands of more Vietnamese people had died. The American incursion into Cambodia had widened the scope of the war. That had set off the Cambodian genocide. One thing after another, um, all of which could be laid at Kissinger's door. So I certainly don't mean to imply that he was a, a, a figure behind whom the nation could unify. On the contrary, he was an extremely controversial one. But nevertheless, a, a very significant one who played a big role in the reorientation of American foreign policy at that time. Now, let me, that's, let's, go, let's leave the pictures now and move on to the next stage of today's class, which is the discussion of part of uh, Kissinger's memoirs. This book, The White House Years, came out in 1979 when he'd been out of office for three or four years. And the book's nearly a thousand pages long. So if you want to know every single detail of K Kissinger's work, sometimes literally hour by hour, this is the book for you to read. Uh, it's full of, I think, great stuff. I don't, don't agree with it all, but nevertheless, it's fascinating. So let's look at, at some of the some of the things he talks about, particularly describing what it's like to be in the position he found himself in. Oh, and I wonder if you could go first, telling us about the relationship between political office holders like Kissinger with the Washington Press Corps. Sure. <clears throat> Throughout the reading, I would say Kissinger makes it pretty clear that the press can be both your friend and your enemy if you hold political office or you're a member of the administration. Uh, on the one hand, there's the pretty funny anecdote about Lyndon B. Johnson saying that if the press is saying good things about a member of your cabinet, they're your leak and you should fire them immediately. Right. Uh, I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, and that's a pretty good example of how like for people who are lower in the administration, the press can serve as a good way to build their own reputation uh, by taking credit for things that go well and shifting blame for things that don't go well. Uh, but they can, they also, there's kind of the sense that the press is almost at odds with the US government, especially the office of the president because they're always trying to find out like what's the dirt going on in the background, right? What's going on? Um, but Kissinger also will talk uh, pretty favorably about them in terms of the intelligence and the knowledge of the people in the press corps. Uh, for example, on page 21 at the top of the page, uh, he says, I too, it must be said, was ignorant of the ways of Washington or government when I proclaimed at the press conference announcing my new position that I would have no dealings with the press. As soon as my appointment was announced, senior members of the press began calling to look me over. I was no little awed by the famous men who I had read or listened to for years and whom I now was meeting at first hand. I saw Walter Littman, James Reston, and Joseph Alsop, of whom Reston and Alsop were to become personal friends. Uh, yeah. He goes on to say, um, I had the impression that he had suspended judgment about the, uh, actually that part's not as important, but he basically goes on to say that these men know more about foreign policy than he himself did or any other person in the cabinet did. Yeah, that's right. People like Walter Lippmann, Lippmann had been famous in America ever since World War One, and he was the grand old man of American journalism who got this incredible fund of accumulated experience, which he can take advantage of. And uh, Owen, can you also read this at the very bottom of the page there, beginning at the journalist has comparably interested motives? Sure. The journalist has comparably interested motives in his contacts with the official. He must woo and flatter the official because without his goodwill, he will be deprived of information. But he cannot let himself be seduced. The secret dream of most officials, or he will lose his objectivity. A love-hate relationship is almost inevitable. 
Yeah, that's the point, isn't it? That I mean, Kissinger quickly realizes, oh, I see, their job is to exploit me and my right. job is to exploit them right back. Exactly. And, yeah, and I'm sure that you've all had the experience of reading a newspaper story, which is so glowing that you can't help suspecting that there's been some kind of at least informal quid pro quo in which the policymaker has said, listen, if you say something nice about me, you can be sure I'll give you access to the next set of secrets. And if you don't have that access, it's very difficult to be an effective inside journalist. Yeah, so having made that initial declaration, Professor Kissinger realizes that might work when I'm at Harvard. It's not going to work here in D.C. He's got that very insightful little summary of the nature of social life in D.C., which is also calibrated by positions of power. Now, James, why did Nixon choose William Rogers as Secretary of State and with what consequences? Yeah, so Nixon and Rogers had a previous relationship. They knew each other as lawyers in private practice, and then they both worked under the in, in the Eisenhower administration, where Rogers was the attorney general. But Nixon's main um, idea behind appointing Rogers was that he did not have any foreign policy experience, um, which Nixon saw as a, as a great plus, um, because it meant that Rogers would not um, enforce the will of the State Department, and that foreign policy would largely be controlled by the National Security Council. Um, Nixon intended that, a uh, quote from the reading, policy direction would remain within the White House. So the consequences of this, um, where that Kissinger says that this appointment enhanced the influence of the State Department and the press and actually sort of backfired on Nixon um, because Rogers would oftentimes not defend Nixon's policies, but instead cater to the attitude of Congress and the attitudes within the press. Um, which, and it, oftentimes he supported policies that actually contradicted Nixon's stances. Um, there was sort of a power struggle that ensued between the State Department and the White House. Um, not, I mean, very little cooperation. Um, Nixon would exclude Rogers from negotiations. He had a lot of negotiations that went through the White House that were typically back channels um, for diplomacy, but became the standard for interacting with foreign governments. Um, and he really did not keep Rogers in the loop. Kissinger's secret trip to China that we talked about, Rogers did not know about that until Kissinger was already on the way, which is interesting. Um, they would say different things to foreign actors. They would contradict each other. And Kissinger says that the Soviet Union was able, even able to perceive that, that they weren't on the same page. That's right, exactly. And remember at one point, um, Kissinger says, Ideally, the Secretary of State should be someone with whom the President is very close, because if, if, he's, if they've got the right kind of personal relationship, it's cr incredibly mutually supportive. Can you read this a passage, please, James? This is on page 31. This is where, as he gets into the more details about his relationship or his relationships inside the government, he admits that he let his own love of power and his own vanity uh, get the better of him, and that he, sometimes he exploited Nixon's weakness in his own interest. Look at the middle of page 31, where it says the relationship was bound to deteriorate. The relationship was bound to deteriorate. Had both of us been wiser, we would have understood that we would serve the country best by composing our personal differences and reinforcing each other. This would have reduced Nixon's temptation to, to manipulate tensions that he both dreaded and fomented. But all our attempts to meet regularly foundered. Rogers was too proud, I intellectually too arrogant, and we were both too insecure to adopt a course which would have saved us much needless anguish and bureaucratic headaches. Good. So that's a place, isn't it, where Nixon admits, you know, my problem was excessive arrogance. Uh, nobody who studied him has ever disagreed with that judgment. And in fact, some people have, have made the case even more strongly than he did himself, that it would have been perhaps better if he'd had the wisdom and the, the, the broad-mindedness to be able to say, I need to keep Rogers informed and we need to work together. But the, the, um, the mutual suspicions and that hothouse atmosphere of the administration made it impossible. Uh, Bethany, what, what qualities made Melvin Laird an effective Secretary of Defense? Yeah, um, I think he actually had a number of really good qualities that um, made him effective at this uh, position. Um, just starting, he had a lot of experience. He had worked for approximately 16 years on the defense subcommittee for the House 
Appropriations Committee, yeah. um, which meant that he also knew a lot of people, you know, like in Washington, he had a lot of like strong networks and powerful connections. He knew the professional language in Washington. Um, he was also extremely intelligent. And Kissinger says that he was uh, good at solving daily problems as they arose. Um, and then more on the like military tactician side, um, he was unwilling to give up an advantage when he saw one. Um, Kissinger says on 30, uh, page 33 that he did not believe in fighting losing battles. Um, and then on page 32, he liked to win, un but unlike Nixon, derived no great pleasure from seeing someone else lose. So that kind of juxtaposes uh, like a, you know, rigidness in, you know, like fighting for what he's believing in or his aims, but also kind of like a sobering aspect of humility in the fact that like he's also like he wanted to win, but he understood when people like when people lost. Yeah. Um, he was also <laughs> sorry. No, go on. Um, he also um, constantly looked for ways to circumvent challenges that came up. Um, he was very cunning. And on um, page 33, Kissinger says that it was safest to begin a battle with Laird by closing off insofar as possible all his bureaucratic or congressional escape routes. Um, so you kind of had to box him into a corner to make sure, or if you're trying to get something done with him, um, to make sure that he wouldn't, you know, like look at something with a, a new angle. Uh, and then lastly, he was also very much willing to respect, publicly respect the authority of the office of the president, um, though in private, he was also like more than willing to offer dissenting opinions. Um, but as soon as, you know, a decision had been made and it was finalized and they went public with it, he was always willing to stand behind it. So you had like a unity in um, your defense presentation. Good. That's right. And he's one of the relatively few people to whom Kissinger accords a high measure of praise. He was obviously led, I mean, everyone who knew him said this. In fact, there's a line there just after the one you read where it says, there was about him a buoyancy and a rascally good humour that made working with him as satisfying as it could on occasion be maddening. Yeah, apparently it was hard to dislike him. And he was, very, he was a very talented bureaucratic infighter who knew how to take an indirect route towards getting his own way. So that's, that's another member of this staff. Uh, Becca, let's talk now about the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Why were the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Earl Wheeler demoralized by 69? Yeah, so uh, Kissinger attributes a great deal of the morale issues within the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the broader military command at this time with issues of psychological investment in the war. Kissinger argues that it was really easy for leaders to focus on only these sort of strategic, technical, and statistical aspects of preparing for war and that there was not enough emphasis placed on the concepts of fundamental values and why they were really fighting. He describes this well on page 34, saying the military found themselves designing weapons on the basis of abstract criteria, carrying out strategies in which they did not really believe, and ultimately conducting a war that they did not understand. He also points out that military leaders were too vulnerable to being swayed by external ideas, such as uh, being swayed towards traditional tactics of attrition that were not compatible with the situation of guerrilla warfare that they were actually facing. And he also says that oftentimes leaders would acquiesce to these ideas, but then harbor unspoken resentment. And so this would just create further divisions and weaker and weaken morale even more. Kissinger also explains that there were several internal battles between wanting to preserve old systems and wanting to move to new systems, and that this confusion led to there being no real clear cause to effectively rally behind. He also mentions that while Wheeler came into his position with the intent of remedying mistakes that the Pentagon had been making throughout the 60s, he only really made small adjustments and rarely utilized his access to Nixon. Lastly, Kissinger described that Wheeler disappointed both members of the Joint Chiefs and himself by failing to challenge Nixon further. Kissinger describes that, quote, in this manner, Wheeler had participated in a series of decisions, any one of which he was able to defend, but the, but the cumulative impact of which he could not really justify to himself. Yeah, that's right. So Earl Wheeler is one of those World War II veterans who's then gone on to a very distinguished career in military life, but he's never again been able to recapture the euphoria of, of victory in World War II, which, which came along with the danger. That clearly at the end of World War II, it was possible to say, here's a victory. But first in Korea, and then even more so in Vietnam, victory wasn't even an option. It was a, it was a limited war, and a limited war of the most demoralizing kind. The, the anti-war movement at home made the army more and more unpopular. Many of the people fighting in the army were fighting reluctantly. The army itself was being taken over by these policy wonks called the systems analysts, which these old battlefield soldiers like 
uh, Wheeler and Creighton Abrams didn't really believe in. But as um, Kissinger says, they didn't quite have the strength of mind to stand up against the the transformation which is taking place around them. And do, do you know, there's that point where Kissinger says, we sometimes have the idea that the army's defiant against the civil authorities, which occasionally is true, obviously, in the case of Douglas MacArthur. But much more often, the army is kind of pathetically willing to fall in with what the civil authorities want. And that this is... Um, this is the case in point, bottom of 35. Contrary to some of the public mythology, they rarely challenge the commander in chief. They seek for excuses to support, not oppose him. And I think that comes out vividly as well. I mean, another thing that Kissinger and Nixon understood perfectly well was that the very broad consensus which had, which had formed around uh, containment and which worked pretty well from the, four, the late forties to the late sixties was now completely falling to pieces. In Vietnam. And in fact, that's the next question. Eric, read us this passage on page 62 about what's going wrong with the concept of deterrence. Yeah, sure. All right, starting at this policy of containment. This policy of containment was flawed in three ways. First, our excessively military conception of the balance of power and its corollary, corollary the policy of deferring negotiations for a post-war settlement paradoxically gave the Soviet Union time to consolidate its con- conquests and to redress the nuclear imbalance. Right. So looking back on it, he's he's saying, unfortunately, containment wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't um, effective at preventing the Soviet development of a nuclear weapon, which, which consolidated the Soviet position. Uh, At the bottom of that paragraph, our relative strength was never greater than at the beginning of what soon came to be called the Cold War. Okay, read the next one. Secondly, Secondly, the nature of military technology was such that the balance of power could no longer be thought of as uniform. Nuclear weapons were so cataclysmic that as the arsenals grew, they proved less and less useful to repel every conceivable aggression. For a while, and jump down again to three, thirdly. Thirdly, our doctrine of containment could never be an adequate response to the modern impact of communist ideology, which transformed relations between states into conflicts between philosophies and poses challenge to the balance of power through domestic upheavals. Good. Can you paraphrase that one? Basically, uh, he's saying that uh, the contain con- the policy of containment that George Kennan like outlined back in uh, I think early fifties, late forties um, wouldn't work now, just because these conflicts aren't simply just like wars anymore. Like with Germany, it was a direct like conquest of territory. I think back in World War II, whereas now it's more of a uh, conflict between, you know, ideologies like communism versus capitalism, essentially. So is he saying that it would have worked better if the adversary had been the British Empire, for example, when the the values were comparable and it was just a matter of straight power? um, I'm not sure if I would say that, but... um, uh, Well, I mean, let let me just put it to you this way. Why, why was why was the Vietnam War so unpopular? After because, all, it was it was containment in action. Because there was no really like end goal. They didn't want to push forward into North Vietnam to expel the communists from there. They just wanted to basically prevent the North North the North Vietnamese from invading South Vietnam and basically keep the communists out of South Vietnam. But it's because you know, so, there it, no so is it because it's. In other words, it, it doesn't meet the psychological test. It's just not gratifying to yeah. find an everlasting holding action. Right. Like, it doesn't seem like there's an end goal in sight. Like, it feels like, you know, the soldiers are fighting a war that seems unwinnable, essentially. Right. And, of course, the incentives of the Americans, of each particular American in Vietnam, are far lower than the incentives of each particular Vietnamese person, especially those who believed in the rightness of expelling the imperialist powers. Exactly. That's right. So, so Kissinger realizes the consensus which has held us together up to this point isn't really good enough anymore. We've got to start thinking about a new way of going about it. Paige, let's jump on to you now. Uh, what balance does Kissinger strike between morality and power considerations? Yeah, so Kissinger presents himself with his own subordinates as pretty ethical. Um, this was when um, most evidence when he refused to hire people that were promised positions in the government. Um, 
and he like that created a standard of like merit within his administration. And oh, you mean when after Nixon's been elected, Nixon yeah. says, I want you to take these people because they work for the campaign. And Kissinger looks at them and says, no, these guys aren't good enough. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because he wanted to like test his um, own because he like he's pretty self-aware that he's pretty strong opinionated. So he wanted to test that against the the like most intelligent men and women he could find. Um, but this doesn't exactly uh, translate in his respect to like the chain of command because he realizes that in order to be an effective um, secretary of state, you need like a strong connection with the president and to have confidence because he recognizes the failures of previous secretaries of state mm-hmm. that um, competed with the president and then lost their influence. So it's well, main- Actually, Paige, let me stop you there for a second. I'm thinking not so much of, of his personal position as his policy position. In other words, what's the, what's the role of morality in the actual policy they're going to pursue? Let me, in fact, let me ask you to read us a passage. This is on page 55. Have you got it there? Yeah. Okay. Look at the first full paragraph on 55 and read us and start reading there if history teaches. If history teaches us anything, it is that there can be no peace without equilibrium and no justice without restraint. But I believed equally that no nation could face or define its choices without a moral compass that set a course through the ambiguities of reality and thus made sacrifices meaningful. Good. Yeah. Can you paraphrase that? I think he's basically saying that um, in like decisions of leaders, they have to have some like sense of of moral judgments because if they're in a position of power, they need to check that power and because they're going through the citizens, not just for themselves making decisions. That's right. In other words, you've got to make, you, you inherit a situation, you know, things happen and you've got to respond and you can't respond in the abstract. You've got to respond to the particular world situation as it is right now. And sometimes that tempts you to do hard-hearted things, like the way in which the Allies didn't come to the rescue of Poland during World War II, for example. But, but then he goes on to say, that doesn't mean that you can be completely contemptuous of, of moral questions. Uh, in fact, carry on from where you got to, the willingness to walk this fine line. The willingness to walk this fine line marks the difference between the academics or any outsider's perception of morality and that of statesmen. The outsider thinks in terms of absolutes. For him, right and wrong are defined in their conception. The political leader does not have this luxury. He rarely can reach his goal except in stages. Any partial step is inherently morally imperfect, and yet morality cannot be approximated without it. Keep going. A bit more, yeah. The philosopher's test is the reasoning behind his maxims. The statesman's test is not only the exaltation of his goals, but the catastrophic he averts, catastrophe he averts. That's right. So in other words, politicians, statesmen, find themselves in a position of, of, of having to answer questions like this. Shall I use this atom bomb against Hiroshima in the knowledge that it will kill 100,000 people? To which sometimes the answer can be yes, even though it's very hard to imagine a philosopher answering the question, is it justifiable to use an atom bomb which kills 100,000 people? You see, he's making a comparison between philosophers who, who look at these questions in the abstract and statesmen who look at them in context. But he is also saying even the statesman, even the politician, can't be completely oblivious of moral context. It's just that he's got to have um, he's got to be aware of many more factors than somebody thinking about these things in the abstract would be. So that, and obviously we can we we looked at the, that example when Truman could make the could justify the use of the atom bomb in the claim that it would abbreviate the war and by killing one group of people would save the lives of many more. And I think Kissinger's just sort of harking back to that point, isn't he? And he's and he's also reflecting on the fact that he's come out of academic life, where, like me, in this respect only, he was a, an academic history professor who spent his time t- teaching about it, thinking about it, speculating about the principles, chatting about it with, you know, gifted and intelligent students like you guys, easy, 
calm, safe. And then suddenly he's pitched into a world where this terrifying war in Vietnam is going on. And there's even more terrifying potential nuclear exchanges going on. And suddenly he's got to make decisions. And therefore, he's got to get clear in his mind what what is permissible for me to do and what must I absolutely not do? Yeah. I think that paragraph on 55 is it's really one for you to put a, a huge red circle around and a big asterisk. And I dare say I'll see you quoting it in papers a bit later on. All right, uh, Sarah, what were Kissinger's aims for American foreign policy as the next administration began? So they were a lot and they were very broad. But I think broadly speaking, Kissinger saw the United States as being profoundly fractured. He says that the Nixon administration was the first post-war generation that had to conduct foreign policy without a national consensus. So essentially, different factions domestically and internationally were disjoint, and that presented the Nixon administration with a host of problems in terms of foreign policy, Um, specifically with regard to the fact that I think Kissinger saw the world as a totally different one than had existed a few years prior. Confrontations and uncertainties, as he says, were being played out for the first time on a global scale. Um, The post-war period was the first one in which all continents of the world were interacting and communication and mass media fostered a sense of uncertainty and just that disjoint fractured environment that I discussed earlier. But in terms of direct aims, given that context, um, I think Kissinger makes it clear that he thinks that a world with, quote, more centers of decision um, needed to happen. So in that sense, the United States couldn't be fully responsible for holding up the helm of the entire non-communist world. Instead, we would need to cultivate relationships, meaningful, uh, you know, effective relationships with other non-communist powers throughout the global sphere. Um, secondly, he claims that ending the war was of the utmost priority. Um, the Nixon administration, he says, needed to lay a foundation for a long-term strategy, um, both in Indochina and with regard to changing the policy or doctrine of containment. Um, secondly, and building off of that, He thought that we needed to manage a global rivalry with the Soviet Union far better, you know, especially in light of the fact that nuclear weapons and their shadow were sort of casting a dark shadow over the entire globe. Um, And then thirdly, he mentions reinvigorating our relationship with new world industrial democracies. So he mentions Charles de Gaulle of France. I don't know that he sees other, you know, rising industrial democracies as a threat, but I think he thinks we needed to co-opt relationships with them in order to sort of like I said earlier, not be the single threshold for non-communist countries within the entire world. Yeah, well, he he says both, doesn't he? On the one hand, he says it's very important that we cultivate these other nations, that they join us in leadership. But presumably what he's thinking about is France, West Germany, Britain, increasingly Japan. So on the one hand, he's sort of reaching out to them. But on the other hand, he's hugging everything to himself and excluding even the people who are immediately around him. Obviously, one of the implications of sharing the leadership is is having less power and being willing sometimes to say, here's an area where we can't get our own way. And although he was an incredibly talented negotiator, he also found the Middle East a maddening place because the various leaders he encountered there were even more stubborn than he was and wouldn't do what he wanted. So, yeah... A lot of things going on there for him to unravel. And then did you also see, Sarah, that on the one hand, he says, it's not enough just for us to deal with immediate crises as they come up, in quick, you know, day after day. We've also got to have a long-term approach to the, the kind of middle distance into the future uh, if we're going to create conditions of greater stability. This is also a chronic problem in foreign policy making. What's the appropriate timescale for thinking and, it's, and, it, and because America is a democracy, it's very tempting only to think about as far as the next election. And uh, particularly if uh, every member of the House is up for re-election every two years, every president's up for election every four years. And so to get them to think about an issue which will play out over 100 years is almost impossible. That's the great problem with the politics of climate change today. Climate change happens very gradually, and the people who are going to suffer most from a, a warming planet haven't even been born yet or are born and are still in their infancy. So it's hard to divert political capital and resources into that to solution of problems like that when there are day-by-day problems uh, right in front of us. Did you nevertheless think, Sarah, that he, I mean, did you get a good impression of him? In a sense, like as a moral judgment or like in terms of what I think about his personality generally? Yeah, well, it was actually, you probably already knew about him. Did, he, did, did reading this improve your judgment of him or did it worsen it? I think it did. I think a lot of times 
he gets a bad rap. And I don't know enough about his policy on human rights to make a concrete judgment about that. But you can see, at least through this second chapter, that he does care about morality to some degree. He, you know, while he might not live that out in every single policy, at least he states nominally that there is a room for moral judgment in determining the choices that countries need to make in their foreign policy. And I think that's something that often gets lost when you're uh, just reading about surface level depictions of Kissinger in American history. Right. Right. For reasons of time, we need to leave it at this point. But we will be looking, uh, as the course goes on, we'll be looking quite a lot more at Kissinger's actions in the 1970s. And we'll also, uh, one of the things we're going to be glancing at later on is the fact that after 1977, when Jimmy Carter came into uh, the White House to replace Gerald Ford, Kissinger, well, he's still alive now. And for at least the next 30 years, into his 80s and 90s, he kept on hoping that he'd be called back to some senior administrative point, but each Republican president in turn looked at Kissinger and thought about it and then said, no, no, I don't think we will. So he, he's, uh, he's written some great books since then, but he's never been allowed back into the, uh, the, the centers of power making. That might also say something uh, revealing about him. Anyway, thanks very much, everybody. And I look forward to seeing you all again next week. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.